Um, pray one more time, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you beseeching that you would be among us, that your Spirit would work in us, that your Spirit would enlighten our minds and allow us to understand uh, greater the depths of the suffering of Christ and even our imitation of that suffering as we go through life. Um, Help us to properly contemplate and to glean from your word uh, that when we suffer, what should our response be? Um, Help us, Lord, to um, glorify you this day, uh, honor you this day. um, In your name, amen. Well, this week we're going to continue our uh, study on what is really the imitation of Christ, and we're moving through different aspects, if you recall, of ways to imitate Christ. Uh, We looked at Christ's love, we looked at imitating Christ in evangelism, Um, we looked at overall the imitation of Christ and how Scripture lays that out, and this week we turn our attention to uh, the imitation of Christ's suffering, Um, what it would look like to imitate His suffering, Uh, and so forth. So the first question I have is, why is there suffering in the world? Uh, This is an important question, uh, because I think that based on how we understand this, it will help us to have the proper perspective on suffering. Uh, There's none here who would dispute that we are guaranteed to suffer. That's even what this final point looks at, that suffering for the believer is assured. Uh, But it will help us to have a proper perspective on suffering as we go through it. So why is there suffering in the world? That's right. It's the consequence of sin entering the world. Before sin, no suffering. After sin, there's suffering. But what is remarkable about this is that God takes the consequence of sin, namely suffering, And he uses it to bring about the greatest good. Uh, That it is through suffering that we have the greatest manifestation of God's grace towards sinners. That, that, That really in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his suffering, it shows forth the greatest amount of grace. That it is through the death of Christ, we now can have peace with God. That his suffering... His um, sacrificial death has made a way for us to be made right with God. But that in addition to that, it's not just that suffering ends there. We too will suffer. And what we must understand is that it is through the suffering that comes into our life, we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And that in addition to that, we are fashioned and prepared for eternity with him. And so since he suffered so much, should we not be willing to suffer for him, to share, as various verses say, in his sufferings, to have fellowship in his sufferings? And so this is what I hope to bring before us. If you remember, this is a practical look. We're not necessarily getting into all the doctrinal intricacies related to Christ and his death and so forth, but really taking a practical approach to his suffering. So we'll be going through a number of scripture verses 
really allowing the weight of those verses to bear upon us and what he went through um, with the hope then of understanding that he's near us in our suffering. And so this is what I want to bring before us, the contemplation of the suffering of Christ and what it looks like. So we'll first look at the suffering of Christ in general. Um, we'll look at the suffering of Christ in his death. I think, you know, those are two different categories by which you can examine the suffering of Christ. We'll consider, in regards to his death in particular, his response. How did he respond in those times of suffering? Uh, And then finally, we'll look at the fact that, like I said, suffering is assured for us. Um, And then what should our response be in light of that? Any questions or comments before we jump in? Pretty straightforward, right? Okay. When contemplating the suffering of Christ, like I said, there's two headings. There's his suffering in general and his suffering in his death. And I think it's important to understand that because when we think about the suffering of Christ, we tend to just gravitate towards his death. But what we must realize is that the whole of Christ's life, in a sense, was suffering of various types. Bavink even states this. He says, The life of Jesus, beginning with the incarnation, begins his suffering, which culminates in the cross. And so we understand that the whole of his life, it's as if there's some aspect of suffering in various ways which we'll walk through, and then it's, it pinnacles in his death. And this makes sense. We, we know him as being referred to the suffering servant. That's what he came to do in many ways was to suffer and to give himself as a ransom for many. So in general, when we think of Christ's suffering, what comes to mind? Okay. In general, not his death, right? That's, we're going to get to the cross, but in general... Yeah, you know, um, I think I have that essentially um, under the heading of him dwelling under uh, what we would call just a wicked generation. Him dwelling under a wicked generation. Um, we, ha- we see this in particular, um, that that would be a burden to him. He didn't know that beforehand. He was in glory with the Father, enjoying the communion they had. And sure, in his uh, condescension and taking on flesh, he's dwelling in the midst of a world that is spiritually depraved. It is uh, de- you know, defiled by sin and really characterized by unbelief. Um, this is what we see even with Lot, right? When we read Second Peter 2, 7, and 8, uh, what we see there is that Lot was tormented. He was oppressed by what was taking place around him. Uh, We read there, it says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. We certainly know what was taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah and and the absolute pervasiveness of the wickedness 
Um, and what is amazing is that it's not just the sporadic torment that took place for him. It was day after day being surrounded by that. And that is ultimately what we see even with Christ. Uh, he too had to dwell among a wicked and perverse generation. He too in this life in a sense had nowhere to lay his head. This world had no hold on him. It wasn't a permanent residence. It, it was just a world that he was a sojourner in. That we too are sojourners just like those before us. But we see in Matthew seventeen sixteen through 17, we see this hard-heartedness and this unbelief, despite the crowd and those around him being eyewitnesses of the very work of God himself. There we read, I brought, your, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And we, in this language of how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? In, in a sense, there's a, there is an aspect of just a, a level of frustration with just their unbelief, their, their failure to recognize and believe that he's who he claimed to be. And so there's no doubt that in that sense, Chris, that there was this weight of dwelling in a wicked generation and among a perverse people. But what are some other ways? I have two others that I listed out in particular. Yeah, so I have here under that heading that he most certainly faced uh, opposition. He faced opposition. Really, from the outset of his ministry, it was opposition upon opposition. It really is something that never ceased for him. Think about it. Everything that he did was scrutinized. It was examined. Um, in order to what? To find some type of accusation against him. His em- enemies examined him from every angle, as it were, with a desire to put him to death. They wanted him destroyed. Um, for example, Math, uh, Mark 3, 1 through 6, here's the type of scrutiny that he was under for an act that was done, a healing that took place that was good. It benefited an individual, right? Um, we read there, he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath for this purpose, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring. They saw this very work that was done, and it leads them not to proclaim that he is who he said he is, but rather to conspire as to how they might destroy him. That's what they were interested in. 
There are many examples like this, even like Michael was saying. I mean, all of his interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they come to him to trap him in his words, uh, you know, that, that they would see if they could find a way to cause him to stumble. Um, and so he faced opposition to the utmost. Uh, everywhere he went, it was, in a sense, a life of opposition. Anything else that you guys can think of? Yeah. Yeah, so that goes along with, I think, you know, what we were even saying as far as him coming to dwell in a, in a wicked generation. In a sense, it was an emptying by addition, an emptying by taking on human likeness and coming in the form of a servant, right? Um, I have, um, along the lines of opposition, but that of a life of being insulted, um, you know, uh, rejected, um, and what was the, and then falsely accused. Um, this is what he continually faced. Um, if we look at Mark three twenty one, we see a picture of this. Um, he suffered through being insulted, falsely accused, and rejected. And it was due to what he was preaching. It was due to his message. Um, we see this in one aspect, that he was viewed like literally as crazy. And this is what we see in Mark 3.21. It says, When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they are saying he has lost his senses. Uh, in the Greek, uh, what is literally being conveyed here is that they believe Christ had, had gone Uh, had lost his mind. Conveyed elsewhere in John 10.20, if you recall, what they thought was that he had a demon. Uh, Rather than recognizing him as come from God and as God, they ascribe and say he is a demon. Um, And that he had gone insane. Uh, We also see that he was discounted and rejected because people knew where he was from. They knew that he was, if you look at uh, Matthew 13, 54 through 57, if you recall there, it's, it's those that were in his hometown and they considered his wisdom and his miraculous powers and they took offense at him because they knew where he was from. And so we would, in light of all of this, um, this kind of breakdown of his suffering in general, one thing that should come to our mind is that the suffering that Christ experienced, we experience in many ways. We Our suffering follows the same pattern. You got to... Yeah, you see great patience displayed there. 
And it really is a picture of even the patience that we should have towards one another um, as we work out certain issues and interact with each other. Um, it truly is a, a, a great um, example for us. But our, our suffering follows this same pattern in many ways. We are insulted and falsely accused and rejected by those around us. Um, think of the, what we endure from family, from friends, from co-workers, from people on the street if we're evangelizing, all as a result of our union with Christ, as a result of the message that we're preaching, of really a result of our desire to see people saved, uh, to see them come to the knowledge of Christ and uh, what He has done. We encounter verbal insults and mocking. Uh, we bear ridicule and scorn. Um, and on some level, we'll experience some aspect of false accusations, things being said against us that are just flat out wrong, with the purpose of seeking to discredit us or even to bring about greater persecution. <clears throat> but we are also opposed. Um, much like Christ um, we too are going to be opposed. Um, we are being watched and examined in many ways like he was. People want to see every little thing we do to try to catch us slipping up and then call us out on it um, uh, in, in, in a desire to persecute and kind of um, um, accuse us and so forth. Um, we're confronted by people that feign genuine interest uh, in hopes of tripping us up um, or asking us questions, not with a true desire to know, but to bring some sort of controversy to the forefront. Uh, one area that I think of this is in topics that are no longer like culturally accepted to have those viewpoints. So for example, LGBTQ. They want to find out your position, right, with the purpose of causing a bigger ruckus, or whatever the case may be. It could be that they bring it up in the workplace and desire to get you fired from your job. However that ends up working out. Um, I even told the men at the men's study that I think that this is the direction of persecution that we're going to see when our jobs are on the line because of stand that we're taking in this area. And when, our, when it comes to our paycheck and our mortgage and our bills... Like, we need to make sure, we need to be solid on this. We do not compromise ever the Word of God and the truth uh, therein. doesn't matter. The Lord will provide. But we stand on that. And so that's where I see this going. We see the world moving that direction. All these companies becoming um, LGBTQ affirming. Um, and there's going to be much wisdom that is needed uh, in that area on how to handle that. Uh, in addition to that, you can think of like your, the world's stance on abortion. Uh, they'll bring these issues up for the purpose of directly opposing you, not because they genuinely want to hear the truth of what the Word of God says, but because they, they desire to persecute. And so when we take a stand on those things, really it's like persecution is assured. If you're walking any type of consistent Christian life, if you're following in the footsteps of Christ, you're not going to have to go seek out persecution. Um, it, will, it will be present. But much like Christ too, we are oppressed by the culture around us. Uh, think of all the things that you hear throughout the day, the comments made, 
the jokes said, um, the things that you see that are done around you, uh, the boasting and unbelief and the, 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 the pride of this life. And do you not ever feel as if like your soul is like tormented? You're oppressed because of what's going on around you. Um, it can be overwhelming at times. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's, I mean, it could be taking the Lord's name in vain. It's like every single time. And it's like, you know, and then you tell them and it's not. Thankfully, there are times where people have done that and then they kind of back off and they're like, oh, you know. And then there's other times it's almost like they know that and they ramp it up to another level. Um, but here's the key. We're following in the steps of Christ. He has blazed a path for us and he endured perfectly. Um, and so as we think about these things, that Christ has gone through these different aspects of suffering, right? is there any reason for us to think that he can't sympathize with us? That we can't take these burdens and these cares and uh, the weight of suffering before him, right? And to pour out our soul in prayer before him and ask that he would sustain us? Uh, he understands our sufferings in more ways than we can fathom. And oftentimes it's our own unbelief that um, really kind of hinders us from more frequently going before the throne of grace um, and asking for him to sustain us. And to also, I mean, in the course of that, right, we have a natural tendency to want to relieve suffering. And so then that's where we kind of totter on this balance of compromise, of I don't want to suffer, so I'm going to compromise on this point or compromise on that point. And we need his sustaining grace to uphold us uh, in our day-to-day interactions with what is going on around us. But now we come to really the suffering uh, in his death. This is the pinnacle of his suffering. Um, But before we examine the specifics you know, he, what we have to understand is he knew what he was going to suffer. He was aware of it, and he grew in that understanding to where the weight of that really came to bear upon him, as we know, even in the garden, um, where he is praying and asking if there's any other way. Well, we must understand uh, he uh, never sinned in that, right? It wasn't this uh, despair or anything like that. Um, but he was crying out um, uh, to his father. Um, there was a weight that was expressed in the garden all the way up to that final cry of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet what is amazing about this is that he steadfastly went to the cross. There was no wavering. He set his, his, his face there and for the joy set before him endured that cross, despised the shame. Uh, that was associated uh, with the cross. And on his path um, to the cross, he forewarned his disciples multiple times that he would suffer. Uh, We see that in Luke 9, 21 through 22, it says, but he warned them and instructed them not to tell anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And just so that they understood, in verses 43 through 44, while everybody's marveling at what he's doing, he tells his disciples to let those words sink in, that he would suffer. 
but yet he would still triumph. Um, we get a picture of the many things that he references in that verse. In Mark chapter 10, verses 33 through 34, there's a little bit more color provided as to what this suffering would involve. And so here's what he says. He says, um, and again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen, saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And here's what they're going to do. They're going to condemn him to death. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. And here's what they will do. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will scourge him. They will kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. These are verses that, and events, we all know. There's no doubt that we know these verses. But I want to look at each of these aspects um, a little bit more closely. As we read through the passages and walk through the instances of his suffering and these events, my hope is that we allow the full weight of Scripture to bear upon us. Even as I was preparing and like, on the verge of, you know, I mean, I was tearing up. You guys know I tend to be more emotional. So it's like I was tearing up thinking about this is what he went through on our behalf. Um, and so let's l- allow the weight of this um, to really uh, bear upon us and to consider what he went through. But then on, to- on top of what he went through, what was his perspective What was his response in all of that? So first we have um, one uh, is the the trial um, with or before uh, Caiaphas. You know, we don't have have the time to examine every aspect, so I kind of just broke it down into some of these main headings. Uh, But let's look at Matthew 26, uh, 57. This trial uh, was built upon false accusation after false accusation. They were seeking out people to bring false claims. And as we, uh, as we know, they couldn't find anything. Um, that's what we see. They were trying in verse 59 to obtain false testimony so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. That's amazing. They could find nothing on him, by which any of those false accusations stuck. <clears throat> but what we see in verse uh, 63 uh, and 64, it says this, but Jesus kept silent, and, he, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. He can't deny himself. He speaks and answers uh, their inquiry truthfully. Um, Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And this doesn't satisfy them. They then twist that to be some sort of blasphemy so that they could uh, put him to death according to their desires. Their desires of putting him to death um, 
we see in verses 68 through 67, here's what they did after handing him over. It says they spat in his face, they beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. And they, prophesied, and they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? This is phenomenal. We'll see this in these next couple of verses, that this is the same thing that happened again. And what I found myself thinking about as I worked through this was that Christ is the very one sustaining their breath to say these things. He is upholding their very life. Um, and this will come through when we look at his response and we think about everything that he went through. Um, it's truly remarkable. But we see that this wasn't the only time, right, that he was um, uh, scour- uh, scourged and beaten. This seemed to be a common theme on his path to the cross. Uh, Matthew twenty-seven twenty-six through 31, if we want to uh, turn there. And if somebody would like to read that. Yeah, 26 through 31. Yeah, when you think of the fact that it wasn't just Pilate acquiescing to the desires of the people. He then didn't just release him and say, okay, go hang him on a cross. Um, he had Jesus scourged. He, um, I, don't, I don't know how many of us are familiar with what that would have resulted in, but essentially that would have resulted in his back being completely ripped open. Completely ripped open. Um, and then on top of that, you can imagine when you have a cut and you touch it, there's like pain, right? Same thing. They put a robe on him. Uh, they mocked him in the midst of all of his suffering. Um, they took a crown of thorns. They pressed it into his head. And they spat on him. They beat him with the reed on his head. And then they led him away to crucify him. And imagine your back being ripped open and you're carrying your cross for a time. It truly is remarkable, uh, especially when we think of what he did, what he went through. And then his response. And I keep drawing us back to that because we're going to consider his response in the midst of all of this. Next, he was hung on the cross, put on display for all to see. When, when we read in Hebrews 12 about he endured the cross despising the shame, that's a key phrase. There was much shame 
and being hung on a cross. So much so that for a, a Roman citizen wouldn't die that way. And yet, here we have the Son of God nailed to the cross uh, to become a curse for us. And here, in the same chapter, verse 39, we have the crowd hurling abuse at Him. And the chief priests and the scribes in verses 41-43 through mocking Him. Yet again. And then, if that wasn't enough, you have the two thieves on each side at the same time insulting him with the same words. Now praise God, one of them was saved. But nonetheless, to imagine, here you are hanging on a cross, fully displayed, in absolute torment, being insulted, being mocked. And what's amazing is they're saying, come down off the cross. You say you're the Son of God, just come down. Imagine that temptation in that sense, if you will. Um, And yet he sticks to doing his Father's work. That's what he came to do. That's what he desired to do. The love he had for the Father was greater than any of the suffering he was going through. Here's the other amazing thing in what we see in John 19, 26 through 27. He is in the midst of the greatest amount of suffering that can be really done by man. And here's where he is focused on. Still the need of others. When Jesus, saw, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Despite the enormity of the pain that he was going through, and that really anyone can go through, and being barraged with insults and mocking, he ensures that his mother is cared for. He's not worried about his circumstances and the things that he is going through. He is still looking to others. We see this same idea, you know, even with Paul when he was in prison. And he's given the Philippians an update as to what is going on, that what they thought would hinder the progress of the gospel, in fact, was for the go- allowed the gospel to go forth more, even to the whole Roman cohort. He's not worried about his circumstance. He doesn't care about his circumstances. It is the gospel going forth. He is, what he cares about is, even in that case, is encouraging the Philippian church that the work is still being done. Yet when we suffer... We're generally, if you're like me, it's like, woe is me. Or, you know, woe is me, and I can't think to think about anybody else. I need this suffering to end. And yet here's what Christ models for us, even in caring for his mother, ensuring that she was taken care of. But finally, in verse 46, we have that great cry of dereliction. We read this, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in some sense, we cannot understand the fathom, or cannot fathom or comprehend the fullness of this suffering. Up to this point, what Christ had suffered was at the hands of men. Uh, that is some of the, he experienced some of the greatest wrath that man can show. 
But here on the cross, he experiences the removal of, the father's, of his father's favorable presence. His father didn't cease to love him. The ontological union and communion within the Trinity was not shattered. But nonetheless, in the person of Christ, that communion had been broken. If you recall last week, I mentioned that Christ in his person had always experienced unhindered communion with his father, both, you know, pre-existently and then also on earth. We see the number of times he would commune with his father through prayer. But here on the cross, while bearing the sin of his people, that communion had been broken. And here we have the just for the unjust. Men may do to him as they please, but to be separated or to be forsaken by the Father caused him to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here we have, as it were, the very height within the height. We talked about like how his death was the height, but it's like in that, here is the pinnacle, uh, being forsaken. But as I said at the outset, notice that it is through his suffering through his death that we have the greatest manifestation of God's grace towards sinners. There's one quote, I was telling my wife, I was like, I think this, she's like, didn't somebody say that? I don't know it exactly, but it's like here we have at the cross where there's wrath being poured out and grace and mercy meeting at the same time. That through his suffering and the giving of his life, we read a few verses later, that veil was torn in two. And we now have unfettered access to the throne of grace. Uh, This is what his suffering uh, brought about. Thankfully, you know, here in America, we don't have to suffer in that sense of giving our life right now. Who knows if that time is coming. Um, But there's a chance that we end up having to go through that. And we know for a fact right now, even this day, our brothers and sisters around the world are giving their life as a result of their union with Christ. And so in light of all this, when you think about you know, these three aspects of his suffering in general and his, his, his trial and his um, beatings and his being hung on a cross and his suffering the wrath of God on our behalf, The same question stands, do we have any reason to think that he cannot sympathize with us? That is remarkable, that we can go before him and he is near in our suffering. He identifies with our suffering. It's even what we see in Acts 9 in the conversion of Paul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He identified with his people in their suffering. But here's his response. It's a, it's, it's, you know, these things are remarkable enough, but here's how we responded. We get a great summary perspective of this in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. So let's turn over there. Really, the, the whole book of 1 Peter, if you were to look at one of its themes, it is really that of suffering. And what he, Peter is continually doing on the whole is pointing them to look to Christ. To look to what we have to be revealed to us in the coming of Christ and what Christ went through. That is the common uh, exhortation that he is giving to them. Here's what we read. 
For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. In other words, He didn't deserve what was happening to Him. He was truly the just for the unjust. But here's his response. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. There was no, well, one day you're going to stand before me and I'm going to deal with this. But instead, what he did was he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. That is, he entrusted himself to his father, that he would be vindicated. He didn't need to vindicate himself. He would be vindicated. He trusted the father that what he had been promised, he would receive. And that is a kingdom, that is a people for his own possession, that is the name that is above all names. And so in light of that, do we revile when we're facing persecution and suffering as a result of our union with Christ? Do we threaten? Do we seek to vindicate and to justify ourselves? I think far too often we, we likely do. We have the same promises Christ had. That we would be cared for, taken care of. We have an eternal, uh, an eternity with Him. And so this brings us to us, really. Um, we are assured that we are going to suffer. We're guaranteed. It's, it's not an option for the Christian who is seeking to walk as Christ walked. Uh, there's nobody here who would dispute that. Um, for that's what we even said, right? He's given us an example that we would follow in His steps. But we have Christ's own words. Uh, there's a lot of places we can turn to, but John 15, 20 I think sums it up well. He says this, Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which we just looked at, they persecuted him, and they put him to death, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will, also, they will keep yours also. So in light of all of this, the question is not, will we imitate Christ's suffering that's a guarantee we will the question we have to wrestle with is will we imitate his response at the end of the day we're guaranteed to suffer how will we handle that suffering will we imitate his response and how do we go about doing that well first we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ he is the author and perfecter of our faith he too did the same thing. He kept his focus on the will of the Father, the work that was given to him. It didn't matter what happened to him. It didn't matter what people said to him. It didn't matter any of that. He was laser focused on the work that was given to him. Let's look at 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Like I said, Peter seeks to, to point the recipients of his letter 
to Christ. That in the midst of their suffering, their fiery trials, that they can endure based on looking to Christ and remembering what they have in Christ. Here is what we read. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It shouldn't surprise you. You're in Christ. You're going to suffer. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, that, that, that language conveys union. You're sharing in His suffering. It's not as if He's over there and then you're over here. You're suffering just as He suffered. Here's what they're to do. Keep on rejoicing so that, so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. See, we have that same promise, that same, they can do what they want to us in this life. Treat us how they will. But in that day we exult. We rejoice. In that day we have relief. And he says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. To suffer is the state of blessedness. Oh, that we would have that perspective that we suffer and therefore we are blessed. If it's for the right reasons, obviously. Peter even states that. It cannot be that we're suffering because of sin. We cannot go and you know, treat somebody a certain way and then as a result suffer for that and think like, okay, I'm being, you know. Secondly, we must set our minds on things above. This is a common theme we see throughout Scripture. Colossians 3, for example, set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated. But what that is ultimately saying is that we must maintain an eternal perspective. That's what Christ did. He was, he was fixed about doing the Father's will. That's what we see in Hebrews 12 too, that He, for the joy set before Him, knowing what awaited Him, the glory He would once again have with the Father, uh, He endured the cross. We too have these same promises. We have eternal life and eternal hope in Christ. This present world has no hold on us. There's nothing it can do to us. And so our perspective must be on the glory to be revealed to us. We see this ultimately in Paul's writings in particular. This is the perspective that Paul maintained. And it's also the perspective that he exhorted his, the, the believers to maintain. Um, this is what we see in Romans eight sixteen through 18. For the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. And here it is. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oftentimes, as this world presses in around us and the sufferings come and the persecution comes, we lose our focus. We can only tend to see like what's right in front of us. And we kind of, then we get depressed and we get downcast and we get worried and we get anxious. And what Paul is saying is to have the perspective that the sufferings of this present time, for some of us, could end tomorrow. Could end tomorrow. And we're in glory. 
but also 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17. We looked at this before when I was working through the Beatitudes, but this is a phenomenal passage. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now look at how he describes the affliction he is going through, and any one of us goes through. It is momentary, and it is light. But look at what it produces. It produces an eternal weight of glory. There is a compare and contrast taking place there. In comparison to the glory that we're going to have, these afflictions, they're light. They're momentary. Why? Because the glory that we're going to have is so weighty and it is eternal. It'll never fade away. He says, while we look at the things which are um, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the, at the things that, um, which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're going to fade away. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And so this is the focus we ought to have. We're guaranteed to suffer. The biggest issue is, is will we imitate his response? Will we have the proper perspective in our sufferings? Or will we grumble and complain and desire just to be removed from it? Not that we shouldn't seek to relieve suffering if the Lord allows, but if He has it for us to suffer, will we, by His grace, bear up under that with a godly response and a godly perspective? Any comments, questions, thoughts? Mm. that's it this whole life for us in many ways from the moment we become a christian to the moment we die is truly a life of suffering just like it was for christ in that sense Yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, the suffering we go through um, really is another way of showing Christ to the world, provided we handle it Christ-like. You know, if we're out there and we're reviling because they're reviling, that's not right. But much like the same way, you know, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In the same way, uh, similarly, I would say, the way that we suffer, we can show Christ to the world. Any other final comments, thoughts? All right, let's go worship.